Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Jolly. Well, we are getting there. There are now only, oh Lord, three weeks to go. Thank you to everyone who's recorded and sent in questions about the election already. If you're baffled about anything to do with the election, polls, politicians or policies, record a question on your phone with your name and where you're from and email it to redboxatthetimes.co.uk and we're going to round them all up and answer them in an upcoming episode. And you may have noticed there are plethora of frankly inferior political podcasts popping up during the election so help red box up the chart by reviewing us on itunes but only if you're going to be nice go on do that while you're listening to this week's episode so to this week and we go behind the scenes of an election campaign with three people who know what it is really like polly mckenzie was a policy advisor to nick clegg and now runs the demos think tank she explains how a manifesto is written james johnson was theresa may's downing street pollster and now runs jl partners he will explain what campaign bosses look out for in the polls. But first, Theo Burcham, a former advisor, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, on how to avoid things going wrong. This week will feature some big set pieces. The first TV debate and the manifesto launches. These should be slickly produced moments that are rehearsed to death, but no matter how well the teams prepare, things never go precisely to plan. So Theo, just explain what your role was when you were working for New Labour. So I worked as a Labour Party organiser, first of all, in the southwest region. And my job there was to uh, make sure that we were ready for the election campaign. And then I worked for a Labour MP. I worked for the party in the attack unit. So my job then was to make Tories lives hell. And then um, I had a lucky break, which was I spent one summer doing all my research on David Cameron. And he turned out to be the leader of the Tories. And I ended up coaching Blair for Prime Minister's questions time. He brought me into number 10 and I stayed there throughout Gordon Brown's time. Uh, whereas an advisor to him and one of the last things I did was I led the debate team and my role was to play Nick Clegg in the debate rehearsals. So it's interesting the TV debate. Let's talk about TV debates because it's happening tonight so we obviously haven't seen what's happened. How, because given it back in 2010 they were new. You didn't really know what to expect. So how did you go about preparing for that? Well, in 2010, they were new and we were able to shape what they looked like because everyone wanted the prime minister to be part of them. The prime minister's not part of them. It's not a debate. We tried to steer things in our favour. So we made sure it took place outside of London in cities. We made sure that there was an audience so that Gordon could appeal to them. We wanted some combat between them. So we were able to dictate a lot of the shape and then we could prepare according to that shape. Um, it didn't quite work out as we <laughs> hoped. Because the character that you played ended up being better than anyone expected. It, it, he did, definitely. Uh, we had, did anticipate during the rehearsals that Nick Clegg was in a good position because you know the plague on both of your houses line was always going to work well. But we didn't anticipate quite how well he would do. Uh, it was staggering. And what was your involvement, Polly, in those debates back in 2010? So I wrote the book... Uh, with my colleague Sean Kemp, who did all the funny bits uh, and the tiny sound bites, and I made sure that it was all accurate and substance. The book was a, like a big book, folder. The folder, so like a page on each topic that might come up, key sound bite, key attack lines, couple of facts that might be useful, where relevant a story. Um, I met a man. A man, 
at John, called John on the seafront at Plymouth or whatever it might be. No, they're which, difficult, aren't they? Yeah, you, when they, done well, yeah. they can be really, really powerful. When done badly, they're just so excruciating you want to eat your fist. But And the problem is, if they're too vague, people think, well, that's just not true. Yeah. You just met a man called John who said that he agreed yeah. with you. If they're too specific, you just think, well, that's just, that's that didn't happen. That's way yeah, yeah. too... Uh, so you need yeah, to Or it. if it's really specific, then the journalists will say, okay, can you introduce me to this person? Or where are they? And then, you know, you discover that that person once, I don't know, like stole food from a baby or something. And then, <laughs> then you're into a world of pain. So obviously for anything to have gone into that folder we had to know that it was either true. So Nick did kind of town hall meetings. Basically, at least every week, he would go and do a kind of open Q&A. And and lots of the stories came out of those where there was either footage or recording of a person genuinely telling him this fact or piece of information or point of view. So so we we knew we weren't making it up. But the risk, James, with all these is that if it's too rehearsed, it just comes across a bit weird that actually David Cameron... Look, despite the fact he did loads of town halls and stuff before 2010, he came across very strangely if it's too forced and stilted. Mm, I think I think that's right, and I think uh, you know I think actually what worked for Nick Clegg in that 2010 debate probably wouldn't work now because I think the public are much wiser to you know using the first name, looking down the camera um, already. You know politics has changed so much since then. But what is undeniably a bigger risk is uh, probably the mistake that Theresa May and the Conservatives made in 2017, which is not going to them. And I remember as an onlooker in that campaign. Yes. Um, so we should point out, although you did Theresa May's polling in Downing Street, it's sort of written on all of your business cards. You had nothing to do with the 2017 <laughs> so, campaign. So I guess I, I, I ran the post-mortem into the 2017 <laughs> campaign uh, and, then, and, then, and then did the, the polling after that. But that, to me, actually, was a, was a really important moment in that campaign when Amber Rudd was on the stage at that, at that BBC debate in Cambridge um, saying, um, you know, we need the strong leadership of Theresa May. And I remember, actually, the audience laughed. And that was a real uh, wasn't turning there. point moment. And, and in the and in the post mortem work that w- that we did, you know that was something that that that, that fed through as well. Theo, what about what else can go wrong with it? Because so much these, I mean, everyone says, oh, it's a, pres- it's a really presidential campaign. This like it hasn't like it wasn't when Margaret Thatcher was touring the country. What else can go wrong with a leader? I mean, obviously the spotlight's more on it with a TV debate, but they're on all the time. They are, and you know, I th- unlike being in the Commons, you're on camera more when you're listening than when you're speaking. If you're Prime Minister you're not really that used to people not listening to you speak and having to stand there and the camera be on someone else speaking. But when that happens, it's usually just in the commons and the camera's not on you. You have to remember and concentrate during that time. And it's quite difficult to do that. Gordon would really want to seize the lectern as tightly as he could. And so we'd have to give him little tricks to stop doing that. One of the things that we told him to do was to lift his foot up uh, as a way of releasing tension rather than squeezing the desk and the result was that you noticed that presumably all three of them have been given the same kind of advice because at various points they seem to be doing the charleston there is an amazing photo i think of all three of them in 2010 in one of the debates all with their leg up at the same time as if they were doing it on purpose (laughs) yeah because everyone bases it on the previous uh, leadership debates and in each leadership debate there's a different kind of camera angle i mean we would fight over where the cameras could be, how close they could get, what angles they weren't allowed to be at. We said we definitely didn't want them to see Gordon's notes, for example. So that was one of our concerns with where the cameras are. But even if you try and manage out all of those fine details, you can't prevent accidents from happening. And Gordon managed to hold up his notes as he was leaving the stage. So accidents will occur. 
I mean, I think the bigger one for us was Mrs. Duffy, obviously, which happened just before the day before the last TV debate. And that was pretty catastrophic. This is when he was calling him on Mike, calling him a bigoted woman. As sort of gaffes in election campaigns go, that was pretty up there. Yeah, that was <laughs> possibly the worst moment in my experience as an advisor. I was sitting back at the hotel room with Joel Benison, our fancy American advisor who was great, and Alistair Campbell. We were watching this visit. We think he's going to be back any minute. And then we saw this thing happen. And that was pretty catastrophic. You know, he thought the mic was off, called her a bigoted woman, and then spent the afternoon going back to her place. I think the stuff that she said while he was there in private, I think if we'd had journalists in the room, the view of her as a bigoted woman might have been less contested. I think... <laughs> I don't think it. I don't think it, when you're prime minister, you can pick on a, an ordinary voter in that way. Um, and also, it sort of snowballed because the clip came out, and then he went on the radio. He went on the radio. They played the clip, but it was also being filmed. So you got pictures of him with his head in his hands, having yeah. his own hell played back to him. And it, you know, I'm sure, you both agree that there is a bad story. Bad story is manageable until there is an image to go with it, and worse still, if it's a moving image, a bad story with a moving image is is almost impossible to control. A bad story that's like no one saw, you can shut that down pretty quickly. So the head in the hands moment made it uh, 10 times worse. He came back that night and wanted to rehearse. He was absolutely exhausted and insisted that Alistair and I throw questions at him. And that was the most toughest moment because it felt cruel. You know, he looked absolutely distraught with himself. He felt he'd let everyone down still trying to practice this tv debate and in the end sarah brown came in and said you've just got to sleep we didn't do any prep that night actually the next day given that the papers were full of bigot gate given that all of the hacks were expecting him to mentally fall apart on stage he gave uh, an impressive performance and it was probably the best of the three debates that he did that was that was very tough. Can TV debates now change anything? When the first one's a Nick Clegg thing, there was obviously a novelty thing. People did actually tune in. To what extent this time round? Because there are a lot of them. This you know, varying combinations, twos and threes and sixes and sevens, and then on their own and so. What impact do you think they can actually make, Polly? Often in the visual moment, just as Sierra says, you know, Ed Miliband tripping up off the stage. Uh, <laughs> I'd forgotten about that. Suboptimal, shall we say? And. For me, actually, Theresa May, even though it wasn't a head-to-head debate between Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn uh, in 2017, you know, the nurse who asked her why she hadn't had a pay rise, the bit that's usually clipped is, oh, there isn't a magic money tree. But actually, her first thing was to explain to this nurse that she had had a pay rise because of a sort of technical policy point that people get annual pay progression in the NHS as well as a kind of inflation-related pay rise. And for her to come at a nurse, I haven't had a pay rise. No, I'm sorry, you have had a pay rise. <laughs> like, <laughs> unbelievable tin ear for human engagement that that I think really reinforced this sense that she was that kind of Maybot. But I don't know, James May may tell me that I'm wrong. Yeah, there are various versions of, of the prepping for that for mm. that particular moment. And, you know, one version that I've heard is that that moment or a moment like it was actually sort of planned for and rehearsed. And uh, the first instinct was to actually have a much more empathetic response. But some of the pollsters and, and strategists on that campaign were much more sort of said, no, no, you can't do that. We have to pivot back to the economic 
message. Uh, obviously, you know, that that was the sort of um, advice that was followed. She obviously bears responsibility for following that advice. Uh, don't, don't deny it. But that was the thing. And it's an, in, it's an interesting thing about leaders and polling and polling and campaigns, because I think the campaigns that, that, that really sort of go wrong, and uh, I say this as a pollster myself, is when the pollster is also the strategist. Um, and there's this very sort of literal reading of the polls. So for example, in the start of the 2017 campaign, um, you know, the pollsters in that campaign went out, they did loads of research, and they found that Theresa May was really, really popular in the country. Now, rather than taking that and going, here's this finding, you know, she's very popular, um, how does this work best with her brand and what she's good at? Instead, it was a very literal, okay, she's popular, put her on the side of a bus and bus around the country. And that clearly <laughs> and that clearly didn't work for her brand. So for campaigns to work well, they need a pollster, um, but they also need, um, you know, an open enough trust, trusting dialogue between the pollster and people who know the leader well. And I think the Conservatives are probably in a better place on that now than they were in 2017. And just finally, Theo, the, one of the big differences between now and 2010 is social media, that actually those clips are not just clips that are going to appear on the news and photos in the paper. In a way, if nothing happens in a TV debate, that's probably fine for both leaders. But if, if there is a gaffe or an explosive moment and that goes viral, that's going to be seen by multiple times more than tune in on a particular night. And it may be that if nothing happens, they both think that's good. But it could be if nothing happens, the viewers at home think, well, this isn't a very good choice. And, you know, the decision of, that has left Joe Swinson unable to go may actually be to her benefit in that scenario. When we did the 2010 leadership debates, I remember we had pre-prepared, everything was so pre-prepared, a set of off-the-cuff tweets that would be sent out uh, depending on what various people <laughs> pre -prepared said. Pre-prepared and off-the-cuff. Pre-prepared, yeah. off-the-cuff. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you could see all three parties did the same thing. And, you know, you saw it again at each, in, the, in the 2015 one. I'm sure we will see the attempt to manufacture the most cloying, uh, well-rehearsed social media viral tweets from all the parties. I suspect those won't be the ones that succeed. It will be the colour of someone's socks or did you see that piece of sweat dripping down it was, the nose? It was, in the Tory leadership campaign, it was Rory Stewart taking his tie off and just being right. weird. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Generally. Yeah. Well, um, that, I'm sure, was also a pre I'm sure, I'm sure uh, it was. Off the cuff yeah. Actually, I, pre I prepared Rory for that debate and it actually wasn't. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> no, but that, I think that was Rory experiencing uh, what they I was just talking about, which is looking at the choices in front of us and just feeling a sense of existential despair. And, and one way of displaying his difference was to start getting undressed. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> that, that was that was an example, actually, and interestingly, that debate of how important going back to going back to your point there of how important the room is, and you know, because in that first Channel Four debate on the Tory leadership contest, the one that Boris Johnson didn't go to, there was an audience that suited Rory Stewart more, actually suited Michael Gove more. They're able to have a bit of you know exchange and, and connection with the audience, whereas that sort of BBC One, these high chairs, the you know the lack of audience, oh, barstools should totally be banned. <laughs> exactly, and you know that. That, that favoured Boris Johnson more than the other candidates. Well, we'll be interested to see what happens. I think we can all be fairly certain that the first cloying tweet sent out will probably be from Matt Hancock. That seems the most likely. It's 6.30 in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> right, um, let's move on and talk about the policies that they're going to be talking about. How do you on earth you go about writing a whole manifesto? This is Polly McKenzie. Designing a manifesto is like baking the perfect showstopper. You need a good solid base of a programme for government, lots of icing and bright colours to keep the activists happy, and a few surprises on the inside to grab media attention. So Polly, this is you were involved in writing how many Lib Dem manifestos? So I have done I've been involved in three Lib Dem manifestos, the Women's Equality Party manifesto, the Money Mental Health manifesto, and the Demos manifesto. So lots of manifestos. 
let's start with the Lib Dems. Then we, I, I think it's interesting the, the, the sort of outside political yeah. party manifesto. But let's start with the Lib Dem. How do you go about the opening the Google Doc, the blank Google Doc? <laughs> what starts going into it? In theory, you need a policy covering every part of life, otherwise you'll get told off by veterans or environmental campaigners or fishermen or whatever but then you don't want it to become a melange so where do you start it's a bit different in the parties that have a kind of democratic policy making process uh, the lib dems labor uh, greens because you have got this kind of giant library full of policy content that you could put in uh, some of which is incredibly kind of parochial and tedious some of which is terribly controversial and in fact a dreadful idea and so really putting together the manifesto is not a process of can i come up with some ideas to fill a blank page but how do i sift a coherent story out of all of this kind of content and and how do i shape that in a way that will keep different groups of activists within the party happy you know within the liberal democrats that's the sort of you know the orange book market liberals with the kind of social democratic people obviously within the labor party or within the conservative party different sorts of factions and there'll be somebody who was elected to somebody or somebody who donated money to this that or the other who has to be bought off uh, with some tiny policy about like something incredibly arbitrary in the Lib Dems, it was always Evan Harris, the former MP for Oxford West and Abingdon, who would come up with some policy, usually about science or about how we would grant uh, tuition fee free education to like 12 people in some particular branch of astrophysics, you know, unbelievably <laughs> obscure. But that's a person who's got a vote on a key policy committee, which has got to authorise it. So, yeah, it's really a, a, a kind of giant di- diplomatic exercise. Yeah, you're, you're, you're nodding in there. And we've seen, obviously, Jeremy Corbyn wanted to revel in party democracy, give the party much more say at conference, only to then be saddled with some things he didn't necessarily agree with. Most recently, uh, scrapping all private schools, becoming carbon neutral by 2030 rather than 2050. It's, there is a risk to party democracy. There is a huge risk to party democracy. Corbyn takes a an approach of preaching absolute democracy, but actually he's been quite selective in some of the some of the kinds of democracy that he's willing to go along with. I mean, I think credit to Corbyn in that he kind of made manifesto sexy again in <laughs> uh, 2017. I remember when we worked on them, we would have the same problem that Polly was describing, which is that the membership have foisted on you a bunch of policies that are either impossible or extremely costly or would uh, damage uh, your vote share. And you have to try and negotiate your way through that. And Corbyn has kind of gone to the other extreme of, we'll have it all in, you know, there'll be four day week, uh, there'll be free childcare, um, there will be free beer for workers, you know, and it, it, <laughs> but it's popular. One of the key moments in the 2017 campaign was when that manifesto leaked. And we would always in our day have a much more tame manifesto that we put a lot more effort into the presentation of, whereas their manifesto, they put the work into that. They didn't have any control over the presentation, but it went down a storm with voters. James, what difference does it make? Because you could poll loads of policies and individually they will be popular, you know, especially if it involves giving people free stuff. But 
then you have to, as Polly was saying, sort of tie it into a story. It has to add up mm-hmm. to something. You can't think, well, if we've got five really popular things, if we put ten really popular things in, then it'll be twice as popular. You know, we're all sort of speculating what might be in the manifestos, but you've got to remember that, you know, across the country, you know, probably unbeknownst to them, some members of the public have already seen the manifestos in a way because they've had various policies from them tested in focus groups by the main parties over the last couple of weeks. And one of the real difficulties of testing like something like that, and I think, again, this is what happened in 2017, with the social care policy, the one that sort of ended up ended up imploding, is that if you sit down and read the detail to voters, um, everybody sort of nods and sounds, oh, that sounds that sounds sensible, or that sounds good, because otherwise it's too complicated a proposition, or it just sort of sounds manifestly sensible. It's when it jumps on and becomes something else, and you know takes on a different brand, that it becomes otherwise very good for a party if they can dress it up in the right way, or very bad if it goes wrong. And obviously, with that particular policy, it was labelled the dementia tax. It, it, it was Sort of you know uh, fed into the worst fears about the conservative brand. Uh, one of the ways that I did and tend to do it in, in in my focus groups is rather than you know reading out the policy, which really doesn't get you there very far, and as I say, may may well have been one of the problems on on, on the previous campaigns, is to actually sort of um, you know write up a sort of a mock a mock headline, give a sort of you know front uh, you know the front page of the Times with the headlines photoshopped out on a say a picture of uh, a, a hospital, and then you know the sort of worst case headline that you might see if that if that manifests policy was was announced and you know trying to get a sense of how much can we overcome that how much can that be sort of uh, that that sort of threat be neutered so that's a better way of doing it but because, it's no perfect science because realistically not many people read manifestos exactly and uh, so they're only going to get the news coverage or whatever so it's also slightly secondhand yep so actually you know testing policies line by line doesn't does not get you very far and what about launches because Oh, I remember the Lib Dems always used to do it in the Ministry of Sound because a, a, a supporter owned the Ministry of Sound. There was always something very incongruous about you know unveiling your social care. Yeah, the media team would always floor. come up with super cool places that I'd never been to before, <laughs> and like whizzy lights and lovely colours. So the first one though that I was involved in was 2005. It, which was launched actually at Lib Dem headquarters. I was standing at the back. So the manifesto launch had been delayed because Charles Kennedy had had a baby. Well, his wife had had a baby, just to be clear. And so he was somewhat tired and emotional a couple of days later when he launched the, the manifesto. And the policy that I was responsible for the briefing of was replacing council tax with local income tax, which was, of course, the policy on which Charles Kennedy just had forgotten the detailed 37-page briefing that I had written. And he made something of a hash of his response. And, uh, you know, just a wall of horror was unleashed on us. So I spent a good kind of 36 hours relentlessly answering questions from journalists about what an average income was in different parts of the country. So if you don't know the answers to those difficult questions you can really screw up the lives of your policy team. Theo, what about the title of manifestos? Because it's like a sort of campaign slogan. It seems very important at the time. And I actually can't... Forward, not back was... Building better Britain or... Brighter future... Do you remember that Conservatives in 2010 was an invitation to join the government of Britain? It was a hardback book. To to the Lib Dems or... or (laughs) As it turned out. To the whole public. It was the the big society in in manifesto form. Yeah, I I can remember the Charles Kennedy uh, press conference and we watched it with absolute glee. I think other people's launches are much more enjoyable to watch (laughs) than your own. And and they can only go wrong. There is no... they don't go well. You don't get a free hit uh, with your manifesto. But um, yeah, I can remember doing it as a as an organizer before I worked in number ten, where my job was to get 
all of those people in the room waving placards and cheering and you get 250 Labour Party members to turn up somewhere at nine o'clock in the morning, hang around for an hour waiting for the Prime Minister to come. So by the time the Prime Minister is there, you know, these people have all worked in the party with each other for years. They're all a bit cross with, with each other. They don't like this policy. They're opposed <laughs> to Iraq. You're just trying to make them all happy, try and smile. <laughs> by the time the cameras come and the PM does his thing, they're all just grimacing at each other on the camera. They are not great things to organise party launches, but they are just part of the ritual of our elections. It's fascinating. We see interesting because we've got manifestos coming out this week and possibly next week, depending on when the Tories finally land theirs. So we will be interested to see how theirs come out or indeed what they call them utterly forgettable building a better bite of Britain. Yeah, and I can remember the pictures. That was always a big debate. The music that they're going to come on to, what music are they going to come on to? Because if you pick a band, the band will say, I refuse to let them use my music, even though they can't. And it's the kind of thing that the journalists always mention is he came on or she came on to this music and so you're researching the lyrics. Or, but then in 2010, to get around this, the Lib Dems recorded their own campaign theme tune, a change, <laughs> change that works for you, which honestly, I still sometimes get it as that. an earworm in my that. head. It, it fills me with horror. It was sung by like a staff choir, so obviously like, slightly out of tune. It's so bad. I'll tell you what, we'll be back after the break. Let's go into the break with a bit of change that works for you. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome back uh, to the Redbox podcast. If indeed you are still with us after listening to Change That Works For You, I'm delighted to be joined in the studio by Theo Birch and Polly McKenzie, and this is James Johnson. Traditionally, campaigns have tried to close their ears to the movements in the public polls. But after 2017, when some of them spotted things that their own data did not, the campaigns will be watching them closely, as well as conducting their own detailed research. So, James, one of the things that always surprises me is talk about private polling. Um, sometimes there are news stories about private polling. Politicians will say, well, our private polling is saying something different. And I, I never understand how, if if all of the public polls are saying that Jeremy Corbyn is immensely unpopular, how is private polling suggesting that actually, no, he can walk on water? You're right. Private <laughs> polls don't tend to really replicate the questions in the public polls because, you know, there's not much point, right? Because the campaigns can just look to the uh, the public polls and there's no sort of magic formula, meaning, you know, private polling is better in s- at sampling or anything else. What they do do is they mean that you can get a more sort of micro view of certain elements or parts of the electorate or ask questions that the public 
public polls aren't interested in asking. So, for example, um, message testing. Um, you know, if you want to know which arguments work best, uh, f- you know, to persuade people to vote for you, or which arguments uh, work best to try and get people to not vote for other parties, public polls are never going to run those. So, uh, you know, the private polling allows that, and it also allows you to sort of go d- deeper down. So. People sometimes people think that sort of private, you know, the private campaigns, the campaigns have a sort of private view of every possible constituency and every possible outcome. It's not quite that. That would probably cost too much money. But they do sort of tend to poll clusters of seats, so seats that are similar in in demographic terms or by sort of audience. So you know, who are the key audiences and voter groups they need to win over, and that will give them insight into those specific groups that perhaps the public and national polls wouldn't. And what is then? What's that data then used for? Because one of the things it's, I always think is a clue about how a campaign is going is where the leader goes mm. in the country. And I was really struck the last week, Boris Johnson was in Taunton. Partly I was struck because that's where I'm from. Always nice to see Taunton in the news. But also the Tories have got a decent majority there. It shouldn't really be a seat that Boris Johnson is going to. And so does that point possibly to them being more worried about that than they necessarily should be? Possibly. I think particularly in the last two weeks, look at it. I mean, you know, some, some certainly uh, at this stage, um, although it probably should be sorted by now, but certainly uh, in previous campaigns, you know, the sort of sometimes the visits and the grid would operate a little bit independently from the research. So don't don't assume everything <laughs> is always perfectly aligned. But certainly in the last couple of weeks, look, look closely at the kind of places they're going because they should on paper be informed by the research. And one of the interesting things in this campaign is that you've started to see more conservative figures go to seats like uh, Croydon Central, Battersea, places in uh, you know Reading. Even actually, I think uh, J- James Cleverly, chairman of the party, was down in um, in Brighton over the weekend. So they're also looking at these seats, which on paper shouldn't be Tory gains at this election, but they think they have a chance of of squeaking through. In how important was polling to New Labour? I think I know the answer to the question. Yeah, I think polling, of course, it's important. <laughs> And it's a useful way of understanding what the public are thinking. Focus groups, too, I think, help you see yourself through ordinary people's eyes. But it's never a substitute for leadership or good policies. Uh, it can only you know, give you some feedback on where you stand. I think for the current Labour Party, I think the one thing that they have is the potential to change turnout, given the size of the membership. You know, the polls can tell you where public opinion is, but it can't tell you who is going to turn out to vote. And I think the one thing that we saw in 2017, and we might see again, is regardless of whether there is a national Corbyn surge, there is definitely many more members in the Labour Party than there were in my day, and than there are in the other parties, and they can have a big impact on election day. And sometimes the sort of feedback you're getting from polling and focus groups um, can lead to slightly perverse outcomes. I'm thinking in particular of Dave the Chameleon, Explain how and why <laughs> Dave the Chameleon came he about. Really struggled to get a grip on David Cameron when he first became when he first became leader of the opposition, and we had done the kind of focus groups and polling that James was talking about. And one of the things that came back was it really cut through that moment when he cycled into Parliament, but his bags were bought by a chauffeur driving along behind him. You know, it was a classic example of bad story with an image that stuck in people's minds and the other thing that they felt about him was that they didn't really trust him they felt he was a chameleon that was the animal they described in these focus groups you know when the kind of classic thing a focus group says is tell us what kind of animal this person is and chameleon came back we wanted to double down on that and i think this points to your thing of don't let the pollsters become the strategists and we ended up with a thing where we're like, well, these are the two things. We had a man in a David Chameleon blue lizard costume. 
who was going to cycle on a bike and we were going to have a photo op for this. And we had this elaborate suit made, which of course didn't change colour. So the whole point of it being a chameleon was lost. It was just a big blue. He was just a true blue lizard. It was just a big blue lizard. And um, we put a bicycle helmet on him. But then he, when he got on the bike, he obviously couldn't cycle the bike because he couldn't see and he couldn't balance wearing a large... So the bike was kind of to one side and then he was standing there with this holding, uh, you know, with this helmet on. And it was only when the, the photographers were there and I could see them kind of one asking the other, like, what is this about? What is the blue lizard thing? That I kind of realised we, we've, we've completely gone too far here. This is totally wrong. I mean, that wasn't the worst of it. At one point we had an actual live chameleon in the office that we had rented from someone on a daily basis. And it was just when we were experimenting with cool new things to do online one of the agencies that we'd worked with said you should have a live video f video of a chameleon people love watching cute animals this will go down storm on social media so in the office we had a video camera just filming a chameleon in, in a glass <laughs> box and after the after the day of the chameleon thing we're like all the children's like what the hell is this we came i came back and i was like this, this, this has to go you know this this but yeah it can get ridiculous. <laughs> and Polly, presumably most of the time, Lib Dems just ignore the polls altogether. Uh, no, so Lib Dems um, have conventionally focused on trying to do seat polls because the, the nationally representative polls don't necessarily give you a clear indication of what's happening in individual constituencies. And for a long time, asking a different question, which was about how will you vote in your area gave them a, a better representation of how the how the actual election would turn out. And then I think in 2015, it became completely wrong. They carried on asking people that question, how are you going to vote in your area? And what the Conservative campaign had done really successfully is stop people thinking about their area and started them thinking about the national picture, chaos with Ed Miliband, Alex Salmond being in charge. And so they carried on asking that question about the local area when people were going into the into the, the voting booth with a different question in their mind. And that's why the Lib Dems' internal polling was so much out of step with what happened in 2015, where they weren't expecting that kind of catastrophic result at all. I don't know if polling played any part in it, but just while we're talking about um, Dave the comedian, what was the thinking behind Nick Clegg recording the Carly Rae Jepsen song. So this is one of my. This is one of my favourite Nick <laughs> Clegg is, stories. Ever. I know. And I've, I've. Have you seen it? I've not seen it. I'm no. sorry. Involved is it Call Me decision. Maybe? It's the entire video, yeah. which originally starred Tom Hanks. But so Nick Clegg playing Tom Hanks in a Carly Rae Jepsen music video that was filmed in Margate or something like that. Scene for scene, apparently it's very accurate. I'm sure it is, but I'm, I'm afraid this is uh, as much of a mystery to me as, as it is to you. America, the Americans have their presidential libraries after uh, the president has gone to kind of honour the history of their great leaders so that you can learn from what's gone before. And I do think we would benefit from having a national museum of politics but mostly focused on the hubris of previous <laughs> parties. You could have the Edstone, yep. Dave Chameleon, 
the the Carly Rae Jepsen video, you know, whatever we think is the kind of what do future generations have to learn from the failures of the past? And bacon sandwiches for sale only in a the mu- cafe. A, a yeah. museum of political hubris is brilliant. <laughs> so if I tell you what, if you've got suggestions of what should go in the political hubris museum, email redbox at the times um, I think that's probably all we've got time for. If you have got questions aside from things to put in the museum, if you have got any questions about the election, record them on your phone as an audio thing, and then email it to redbox at the times uk. Uh, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, uh, Spotify, wherever you listen. In particular, so you don't miss our Friday episodes. This week, I've got a brilliant chat with the leader of the monster raving loony party. Um, how on earth uh, do you mock politics when politics is quite capable of mocking itself? Uh, so uh, subscribe so you don't miss that on Friday. But for now, my thanks to Theo, Polly and James. For me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye.